This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week, we honor the year in music for 2011, along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2011. We also make the case for putting the Smashing Pumpkins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, our Spotlight Hall of Fame is the Irish Music Hall of Fame in Dublin, Ireland. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2011. It was the year that Steven Tyler joined American Idol as a judge, Simon Cowell took his X Factor TV show to America, and everyone from Christina Aguilera to American Idol singers forgot the words for some reason to the national anthem at major sporting events. Go figure. J-Lo and Mark Anthony broke up that year. U2 had the biggest grossing concert tour of all time with $736 million made. That lasted until Ed Sheeran broke the record a decade later. Lady Gaga became the first to sell over 1 million downloads in the first week when her album Born This Way came out. Amazon Music priced it at $0.99, cents, which helped that download total quite a bit. I know I bought one at $0.99 cents when it came out. A windstorm made a stage collapse at the Indiana State Fair moments before the band Sugarland was supposed to be on. Michael Jackson's doctor, Conrad Murray, was found guilty of manslaughter in the singer's death in 2009. Beyonce announced her pregnancy at the MTV Video Music Awards, while Justin Bieber was sued by a woman who claimed that the 17-year-old at that point was her baby's father. Bieber won the lawsuit. 2011 was the year of Adele, as her album 21 was the biggest selling album that year. Other big selling albums were the aforementioned Lady Gaga with Born This Way, Lil Wayne's The Carter Four, Jason Aldean's My Kinda Party, Mumford & Sons' Sigh No More, Drake's Take Care, Frank Ocean's Nostalgia Ultra, Jay-Z and Kanye West's Watch the Throne, and Lady A, then known as Lady Antebellum, with Own the Night. Two Christmas albums actually round out the top ten, Michael Buble's Christmas and Justin Bieber's Under the Mistletoe. Adele's Rolling in the Deep was the biggest selling song of the year. Katy Perry hit number one in 2011 with Firework, E.T., and Last Friday Night, coupled with two other songs that hit number one in 2010. Katie became the first female artist to have five number one singles from one album. Michael Jackson, by the way, was the first overall artist to do it with the album Bad back in the 80s. Other big hits were LMFAO with Party Rock Anthem, Pitbull, Neo, and Afrojack with Give Me Everything, Bruno Mars with Grenade and Also Just the Way You Are, CeeLo Green with Forget You, which was actually called something else with an F that I'm not going to say right now, Nicki Minaj with Super Bass, Maroon 5 and Christina Aguilera with Moves Like Jagger, and the Black Eyed Peas with Just Can't Get Enough. However, the biggest viral hit of the year was 14-year-old singer Rebecca Black's 
earworm of a song, Friday. In country music, Brad Paisley had one of the biggest selling and most critically acclaimed albums with This Is Country Music. Other big albums were by Eric Church, Luke Bryan, Miranda Lambert, Pistol Annies, Blake Shelton, Hunter Hayes, Justin Moore, Jake Owen, Lady Antebellum, Emmylou Harris, Chris Young, and Sonny Sweeney. On the singles front, Blake Shelton had the top two singles, while Lady Antebellum had two of the top 15 songs, and the Zac Brown Band had three songs in the top 15. Other big singles artists that year were Jason Aldean, Tim McGraw, Kenny Chesney, Luke Bryan, Rodney Atkins, Jake Owen, Sarah Evans, and Miranda Lambert. In hip-hop, Jay-Z and Kanye West's Watch the Throne was one of the biggest-selling hip-hop albums of the year. Other big albums were released by Lil Wayne, Drake, Young Jeezy, J. Cole, Lupe Fiasco, Wiz Khalifa, Bad Meets Evil, Whale, and Mac Miller. Singles-wise, Wiz Khalifa's Black and Yellow was the biggest-selling single. Other big singles were by Lil Wayne, Nicki Minaj, Dr. Dre, Bad Meets Evil, Chris Brown, B.O.B., DJ Khaled, Jay-Z and Kanye West, and Flo Rida. The hip-hop collective Odd Future burst onto the scene in 2011 with Tyler the Creator, Earl Sweatshirt, and Left Brain. 2011 was the year that legit EDM artists dominated the dance charts. Sure, you still had the J-Lo's, the LMFAO, Flo Rida, and Pitbulls of the world out there, but you also had classic EDM tracks that are actually considered to be some of the best songs of the past decade regardless of genre. For instance, Avicii's Levels is considered the greatest EDM track ever released by a lot of EDM fans, and that one was huge in 2011. There was also David Guetta and Sia's classic stadium anthem, Titanium. Rihanna got with Calvin Harris and produced We Found Love, which still rocks the festival grounds. The Skrillex dubstep revolution kicked into high gear with his Bangarang EP. Swedish House Mafia had saved the world and then got together with Knife Party to put out Antidote. Other artists who were hot in 2011 were Nervo, Nicky Romero, Nadia Ali, Benny Benazi, Katie B, Chase and Status, Laidback Luke with Steve Aoki, and K-pop dance group 2NE1. In Latin music, the big artists of the year were Prince Royce, who had a huge year with the best-selling self-titled album and best-selling single Corazon Sin Cara, Christian Castro, Mania, Shakira, Enrique Iglesias, Wizen and Yandel, Camila, Ricky Martin, Don Omar, and Los Buquis. Musicals that opened on Broadway, including revivals, included Godspell, Anything Goes, An Evening with Patti LuPone and Mandy Patinkin, Baby It's You, Hair, Follies, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Hugh Jackman Back on Broadway, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, The Musical, Sister Act, the musical, The Book of Mormon, and Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, which had the distinction of being the musical people went to in order to see if anybody was going to get hurt at it, as multiple performers had injuries from doing the stunts in the show, sort of like how people go to an auto race in order to see car crashes. Musical films that came out in 2011 included a reboot of Footloose, 
Glee, the 3D concert movie, The Muppets, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked, Country Strong, and the animated movies, A Monster in Paris, Happy Feet 2, Rio, Winnie the Pooh, and Phineas and Ferb, Across the Second Dimension. Bands that formed in 2011 included Adrenaline Mob, Art of Anarchy, Banks and Steels, Big Talk, The Chris Robinson Brotherhood, Crosses, Deep Valley, DIIV, Downtown Boys, Seconds of Summer, and Pentatonics. Bands that, of course, disbanded before their inevitable reunions or announced their hiatus included LCD Sound System, Nick Jonas and the Administration, the Jonas Brothers, the Black Eyed Peas, Disturbed, Good Charlotte, REM, Sonic Youth, Velvet Revolver, She Daisy, and the White Stripes. Bands that got back together in 2011 includes Ben Folds 5, Blink-182, Evanescence, Gym Class Heroes, O-Town, and System of a Down. An awful lot of artists passed away in 2011. They include singers Amy Winehouse, Jerry Rafferty, Margaret Whiting, Andrew Gold, James O'Gwynn, Gladys Horton of the Marvelettes, Don Rondo, Joe Arroyo, Ray Herr, and John Larson of the band The Ides of March, Fasundo Cabral, Bo Dollar, St. Clair Lee of the Hughes Corporation, Lolita Holloway, Ken Arsipowski of Randy and the Rainbows, Rosetta Johnson, Gil Scott Heron, Benny Spellman, Janie Lane of Warrant, Fred Farron of the Arbors, Kay Arman, Andrea True, Ronald Mosley of Ruby and the Romantics, Bob Flanagan of the Four Freshmen, Solvi Wang, Cesaria Evora, and Polystyrene of X-Ray Specs. Folk singer Bort Eric Thorinson, opera singer Cornell McNeil, record producers Bobby Robinson, Don Kirshner, and Sugar Hill record executive who was actually the producer behind hip-hop's first big hit from the Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight, Miss Sylvia Robinson. Also passing away in 2011 were singer-songwriters Debbie Friedman, Bobby Poe, Charlie Leuven of the Leuven Brothers, Marvin Cease, Gene Dinning of the Dinning Sisters, Phoebe Snow, Robert Grill of the Grassroots, Gene McDaniels, Dan Peak of America, Coco Robichaux, Dobie Gray, Sean Bonnewell of the Music Machine, Hilda Heltberg, and Vesta Williams along with entertainers Georgia Carroll and Betty Garrett, composers Tony Geist, John Barry, Russell Garcia, John Strauss, Eddie Brandt, Peter Lieberson, Yagat Singh, and Milton Barrett, trumpet player Barry Lee Hall Jr., country music singers Doc Williams, Ferlin Husky, Mel McDaniel, Jack Barlow, Billy Grammer, Johnny Country Mathis of Jimmy and Johnny, and Billy Joe Spears, along with violinist Emmanuel Vardy, drummers Eddie Serrato of Question Mark and the Mysterians, Rick Kuntz of the Grassroots, Frankie Toller of the Allman Brothers Band, Don Wood of the Gants, Scott Columbus and Eddie Marshall, conductor Blanche Honiger Moise, musicians Dave Shapiro, Eddie Kirkland, Jimmy Norman, Bob Burnett of the Highwaymen, percussionist Ralph McDonald, Evind Solis and Gary Moore, jazz bassist Charles Fambro, 
bassist Mark Tulin of the Electric Prunes, Mike Starr of Alice in Chains, Gerard Smith of TV on the Radio, Mikey Welsh of Weezer, and Harold Johnson, rappers Nate Dogg and Heavy D, songwriters Eddie Snyder, Hugh Martin, and Jerry Lieber, big band leaders Henry Jerome and Oren Tucker, guitarist Tom King of The Outsiders, Paul Moutain, and Bill Tapia, Organist Odell Brown, cellist Bernard Greenhouse, saxophonist Clarence Clemens of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and also Frank Foster, jazz pianist Ray Bryant, pianist Pine Top Perkins, Roger Williams, Johnny Radicano, George Shearing, and Aline Nygaard Rinneus, and keyboardist John DeGregorio of the Charlie Daniels Band, Dax Stoke of TNT, and DJ, host of the British TV music show Top of the Pops, and also accused pedophile Jimmy Seville. Of course, with all of those, let us not forget the death of Apple CEO and visionary Steve Jobs, who helped to spearhead three pieces of technology that, of course, changed music forever, for better or for worse, the iPod, the iPhone, and iTunes. In awards for the music of 2011, Adele took the awards for Best Album for 21 and Song and Record of the Year for Rolling in the Deep at the Grammy Awards. The Best New Artist Grammy winner was a shocker as jazz artist Esperanza Spaulding took home Best New Artist over heavily favored Justin Bieber and also over Drake, Florence and the Machine, and Mumford and Sons, all of whom have really good careers going, including Esperanza. Adele Ann Taylor Swift won the most awards at the American Music Awards, with Taylor winning Artist of the Year. Lady Gaga won Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards for the song Born This Way. Adele won Artist of the Year at the Billboard Music Awards. Lady Gaga's Born This Way won Favorite Album, and Katy Perry and Kanye's song E.T. won Favorite Song at the People's Choice Awards. Taylor Swift won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards, while Luke Bryan won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. Chris Brown won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards. Adele won Best British Album for 21, and One Direction won Best Song for What Makes You Beautiful at the Brit Awards. Michael Bublé's Christmas won Best Album at the Juno Awards. Boy and Bear won Album of the Year for Moonfire, and Got Ye and Kimbra won Song of the Year for Somebody That I Used to Know at the ARIA Music Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held in Germany, Azerbaijan was the big winning country that year for a song called Running Scared. At the Tony Awards, The Book of Mormon won Best Musical, and Anything Goes won Best Revival of a Musical. Musically at the Academy Awards, Man or Muppet from the movie The Muppets won Best Original Song, while the artist won Best Original Film Score, adding to the artist wins that night as the movie won five awards, including Best Picture. The Pulitzer Prize was shared that year between Zhu Long's opera Madame Whitesnake, Fred Lairdal's Arches, and Ricardo Zun Muldoon's Comala. P.J. Harvey won the Mercury Music Prize, becoming the first artist to win the award twice after first winning it in 2001. 
The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held that year on March 4th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. At the ceremony, the hall inducted Leon Russell into a new category called the Artist for Music Excellence category. That category replaced the Sidemen category and honors those musicians, producers, and others who have spent their careers out of the spotlight working with major artists on various parts of their recording and live careers. All that was from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Electra Records founder Jack Holzman and record producer Art Roop were inducted into the non-performers category. In the performers category, the Hall inducted Darlene Love, Neil Diamond, Dr. John, Tom Waits, and this next group. The band and person Alice Cooper have made 28 albums so far, 11 live albums, and 21 compilation albums. They've been nominated for two Grammy Awards and have sold over 50 million records to date. Now, you may be a little confused as to why I said the band and person Alice Cooper. That's because, much like Marilyn Manson and Charday, the band took their name from their lead singer, or in this particular case, it was the other way around. The man, Alice Cooper, was born Vincent Damon Fernier on February 4th, 1948 in Detroit, Michigan. His family moved to Phoenix, Arizona when he was in middle school. He started out in high school playing in a talent show with his track and field cross-country running teammates, Glenn Buxton, Dennis Dunaway, John Tatum, and John Spear, as a group calling itself the Earwigs, playing mainly Beatles parodies. After a while, they decided to get serious about being a real band, so they named their rock group The Spiders and started playing different gigs in the Phoenix, Arizona club scene, even though they were still in high school. And no, they were not playing those Beatles parodies at that point. Once they were out of high school, John Tatum left the group, so he was replaced by Michael Bruce. The band started to venture out to Los Angeles, California to play gigs, and during this point, they called themselves Nas, with two Zs at the end. John Spear also left the group at this time and was replaced by Neil Smith, and it is this lineup with Fernier, Buxton, Bruce, Dunaway, and Smith that stayed together until the band's initial breakup in 1974 and is the lineup that it has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The year after they started calling themselves Nas, they found out that Todd Rundgren already had a band with the same name, so the guys needed to come up with a new name. The urban myth is that the band came up with the name Alice Cooper from playing around with a Ouija board. As Vincent said in an interview, the band actually came up with a gimmicky name that was sweet and wholesome to contrast it with their hard shock rock image, and thus Alice Cooper, the band, was born. Another rumor was that they took the name from the character Alice on the TV show Mayberry RFD. However, People started calling Vincent Alice Cooper, and it got to the point where so many people called him Alice that he decided to legally change his name from Vincent Fournier to Alice Cooper after the band's initial breakup. It also helped him to not have any legal issues with using the name when he started a solo career. 
Another urban myth should probably be dispelled. During the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival concert in 1969, for one reason or another, chickens got loose at the venue and one of those chickens got on stage. Alice took the chicken and tossed it into the air because he thought that chickens could fly because, of course, chickens have wings. For the record, chickens nor turkeys, that's a WKRP in Cincinnati reference, cannot fly, which Alice found out when the chicken dropped into the front section. That was the wheelchair section of the stage, and the poor chicken was ripped to shreds. That's the reality of what happened. What did the fake news media report? That Alice had ripped the head off the chicken and drank its blood. Yeah, and you thought QAnon was weird. Uh, he was actually later told to not deny the story because it kind of fit the image of the band at that point. Plus, it made for a much better story than the truth anyway. So there you go. It was during the making of the first album that Alice began to hone his shock rock stage act. His act combined vaudeville with a horror aspect, which made him a true pioneer in stage presence. As time went on and as more money was made available to him for his shows, he shocked his audience by having snakes, swords, guillotines, and electric chairs as part of his act. In fact, he is known as the godfather of shock rock. In 1968, music manager Shep Gordon approached the band after watching them play a gig in Los Angeles at which the audience hated them so much that most of them left in the first 10 minutes. While the band thought that they had played a bad gig, Gordon actually thought that the Shock Rock Act could work to the band's benefit. He got them in touch with Frank Zappa, who was starting a record label at that point. Frank told them to come by his place at 7 o'clock for an audition. The band thought that he meant 7 in the morning and accidentally woke Frank up. Frank was so impressed that the band was willing to actually play shock rock music at 7 in the morning that he signed them to a three-record deal. The first two albums did okay, but not great, but they were mainly psychedelic rock. The band decided to go back to the Midwest to record their third album and make it more of a hard rock style. The album that came from that, Love It to Death, became a big hit, riding the success of their first hit single, I'm 18. The group followed up Love It to Death with their album Killer. They also went out on tour, and soon the tours became really elaborate, but they also made the band's reputation. They also, by the way, ended up breaking up the band. See, after Killer and three more albums, 1972's School's Out, 1973's Billion Dollar Babies, and Muscle of Love, with hits like School's Out, No More Mr. Nice Guy, Elected, and Teenage Lament 74, combined with non-stop touring, the band needed a break, desperately. After that, they just decided to not get back together after the break. That was all. Alice the Man, however, decided to keep going, and he got a new backup band together, took the Alice Cooper band name as his own name, and recorded as a solo act. And his solo career was extremely successful with hits from the 70s through to the 90s, with songs like Poison, Feed My Frankenstein, How You Gonna See Me Now, You and Me, Only Women Bleed, and many more.
The rest of the guys did one album together, then they did their own things. And the band has actually gotten back together sporadically with the original lineup over the decades. One person, though, has always been missing, unfortunately. Glenn Buxton, who sadly passed away from viral pneumonia in 1997. Presented for induction by Rob Zombie, the group Alice Cooper with Vincent Fournier, a.k.a. Alice Cooper, Glenn Buxton, Dennis Dunaway, Michael Bruce, and Neil Smith, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2011. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. This week, we're going to make the case for putting the Smashing Pumpkins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To the tale of the tape we go. The Smashing Pumpkins had 12 studio albums, 4 live albums, and 7 compilation albums. Of those, 6 hit the top 10, with 1995's Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness hitting number 1. On the singles chart, they had 55 of them, and of those, 14 hit the top 10 with 1996's song 1979 hitting number one. They were also very well known for their music videos, especially the video for the 1996 song Tonight Tonight, which won six awards at the MTV Video Music Awards, including Video of the Year. The Smashing Pumpkins, who were formed in Chicago, Illinois, were different from their 90s alt counterparts in that they didn't come from punk rock roots. Their music, with a few exceptions, was always more melodic than Soundgarden or Nirvana or any group from the Seattle area at the time. Guitarist and lead singer Billy Corgan was the driving force of the group, writing most of the gut-wrenching, nightmare-inducing lyrics. From that standpoint, he did fit the grunge era from the aspect of writing some pretty depressing but cool lyrics. As far as influence goes, you don't have Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, or My Chemical Romance without them. Depending on how you feel about those groups, that's either a good or bad thing, I guess. Now, if you want to get your feet wet with them, then go with Rotten Apples, which was their greatest hits album. If you want a deep dive, then go with their 90s albums especially. Gish, Siamese Dream, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and Adore. They also had the hit song The End is the Beginning of the End, which you can only find on the soundtrack to the film Batman and Robin with George Clooney as Batman. That song also had a slower remix version called The Beginning is the End is the Beginning, and that one was used in the trailer for Zack Snyder's film The Watchmen, which is really worth searching out both the trailer and actually the song itself. Now, the chances of them getting into the hall for the next few years are probably not the greatest. For starters, the hall's not done seemingly putting in every single 60s band that they can find. 
And then there's the backlog of bands that are either eligible now or within the next few years, like Beck, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, etc. Still, the Smashing Pumpkins at least deserve consideration, and hopefully the Hall will eventually see fit to put the Smashing Pumpkins into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Normally, we cover music halls of fame and museums in America. This week, however, we're going across the pond, as they say, to the Emerald Isle. The Irish Rock and Roll Museum was opened in 2015. It's located in the venue The Button Factory, which is on Curved Street in the Temple Bar District in the heart of Dublin, Ireland. Temple Lane Rehearsal Space and Temple Lane Recording Studios are also part of the complex. The museum gives tours of the venues and also has memorabilia and a wall of fame. There's also a wax museum as part of a package deal if you want to go that route. The museum is normally open seven days a week from 11 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. As of this recording, the museum is open for private tours. Adults are 16.5 euros with seniors and students at 14.5 euros. But as always with every museum these days, check with the museum's website to see if and when they're open and when, of course, they do private tours before planning your trip. The website is irishrocknrollmuseum.com and that will be in the show notes. I will also now say that by the strangest of coincidences, this segment was actually scheduled, written, and was about a day and a half away from being recorded when the events that transpired on July 26, 2023 happened. So this segment will not only be about a particular song, but it will also be a tribute to the person who sang it. In 1985, Prince was in an extremely creative zone. Not only was he riding high off of the success of Purple Rain, he was working on his next album, Around the World in a Day, along with material for the next official album after that called Parade, a solo album as an alter ego called Camille, and an album with his band The Revolution called Dream Factory. Both Dream Factory and Camille would be reworked into Prince's album Sign of the Times and also Crystal Ball, which was released after his untimely death in 2016 by Prince's estate. Meanwhile, while Prince was doing all of that, he was also producing and doing side projects with other bands. And one of those side projects was with a group called The Family. They released one album called The Family because, as we all know by now, you can't officially be considered a recording act until you name an album after yourself. Anyway, there's one song on that album that Prince wrote that, much like the album it came from, received very little attention, at least not from the public. As it turns out, though, one artist did notice the song and wrote it to international stardom. Sinead O'Connor was born on December 8, 1966 in Dublin, Ireland as the third of five children. 
Sinead had released her critically hailed debut album, The Lion and the Cobra, in 1988, which, to be honest, is my absolute favorite album of hers and absolute one of my favorite albums of all time. That album had some cult hits like Lay Your Hands on Me, Troy, and Mandinka, which earned her a Best Female Rock Vocal Performance Grammy nomination. In 1989, Shania got to work on her sophomore album. As she was working on material for the album, she came across the family's version of Prince's song. The song about loss struck a chord in Shania that reminded her of the loss of her mother, whom she said abused her as a child, but who was killed in a car accident in 1985 before Shania had made a name for herself. Sinead recorded a 5 minute and 10 second power ballad version of the song, Nothing Compares to You, with her producer Nellie Hooper. Her record label at the time, Chrysalis, put it on her new album, I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got, and released the song on January 8, 1990. The John Maybury-directed music video for it had just a single camera trained on her face with an all-black background, with a couple of shots of Sinead walking through the Parc de Saint-Cloud in Paris, France, thrown in for just a few seconds. The parts where she's crying while she's singing the song in the video are real. She shed some real tears for that video. They were not computer edited. Both the single and the music video were international smash hits. The single went top five in 20 different countries, 18 of them number one, including America, while the album that it came from topped the charts as well. Critically, the song was huge with extremely good reviews. Sinead was lauded for her vocal skills on the song, going from anger to a whisper and back again over and over and not missing a single beat while doing it. When you hear her singing that song, you would swear that she was the one who wrote it because you believe she's feeling everything that she's singing in real time. Sinead's version of the song has also made a ton of greatest hits of the 90s, greatest songs of the 90s, and also greatest hits and greatest songs of all time lists. The single went on to be nominated for a bunch of awards, including a few Grammy Awards, while the music video cleaned house at that year's MTV Video Music Awards, winning Best Female Video, Best Postmodern Video, and Video of the Year, making Sinead the first female artist to take home the coveted Video of the Year prize. In 1993, Prince would release his own recording of his song, but as beautiful as his version is, Shania just nailed it better. And it's one of those few times that a cover version of a song is actually better than the original. However, Nothing Compares to You and Purple Rain were the two songs most used when Prince would tragically pass away himself in 2016. In fact, there was a worldwide radio simulcast of Shania's version of Nothing Compares to You exactly 15 days and 7 hours after Prince passed away, in honor of the lyric that starts off the song, quote, it's been 7 hours and 15 days since you took your love away. In short, it's an extremely well-written song, as you would expect Prince to have written, along with one of the most emotional, gut-punching vocal performances of the past 50 years, masterfully sung by Sinead O'Connor.
Every generation needs an artist who pushes the buttons and agitates in order for some conversations to start up. Sinead was definitely one of those artists for Generation X. In fact, she was a wrecking ball. But it was her cost for having strong opinions and having a voice to say them. She gladly paid the price for it. In order to understand her impact, you have to remember the times and the place that she came from. Ultra-conservatism was huge in the Western world in the 1980s and even into the late 90s. Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush were the presidents in that era. The moral majority Christian conservatives were in control of the media and government in America. In the UK, Margaret Thatcher and John Major were prime ministers during this time. And in Ireland, you had the battles and the bloodshed between the Catholics and the Protestants and also the power of the Catholic Church. The Irish part is what molded Sinead. The American part is what almost crushed her career completely, or rather, as she put it, the career her record label wanted her to have. After the success of both the song Nothing Compares to You and the album I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got, Sinead became one of more than a few artists who bit the hand that fed her and rightfully railed against the music industry, famously boycotting the Grammy Awards in 1991 at the height of her popularity. She boycotted a performance on Saturday Night Live when it was announced that the guest host that night was shock comedian Andrew Dice Clay, who was known at the time for making misogynistic jokes. She said that she would not play in a stadium that played the American National Anthem before her concert, which got Frank Sinatra so angry that he said during his own performance that he would, quote, kick her ass, end quote, because beating a, up a woman is good. Mm. She took on abuse by the Catholic Church by ripping up a photo of the Pope during a performance on Saturday Night Live on October 3rd, 1992, and then screamed, fight the real enemy, which got her into a ton of trouble and derailed her career for a time in America, or as she put it, the career her record label wanted her to have. During the next week's episode of Saturday Night Live, guest host Joe Pesci held up the retaped photo of the Pope and said that if he were the host that night, he would have hit her. To which the audience applauded loudly because, again, hitting women is good? I don't get what was with the whole hitting women thing. Even famous church agitator Madonna went after Sinead for doing what she did though most people pointed out Madonna's hypocrisy and history and just figured that Madonna needed some extra publicity for the sex photo book she was selling at the time. A few weeks after that, Sinead was booed mightily at a Bob Dylan tribute concert. On stage, fellow performer Chris Christofferson held her close to him, protected her from the crowd, gave her a hug, and said to her, quote, Don't let the bastards get you down, end quote. Funny thing was, Sinead was years ahead of her time in protesting the sexual abuses of the Catholic Church as the accusations of sexual abuse by priests and the cover-up by the Catholic Church would start to become news both in the media and in the court systems worldwide about a decade or so later. Then there was Sinead's search for meaning in her life through different religions. 
She was ordained as a minister in the Latin Tridentine Church, which is a denomination of the Catholic Church that is not under the Pope's control, back in 1999. She eventually converted to Islam in 2018. As people have aptly pointed out, she had her struggles as well with mental health issues for decades, including being hospitalized after sending out tweets, now called exes, excesses, who knows, where she had talked about killing herself. She had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Ironically, her son Shane, whom she lost custody of when he was 13 to Shane's father, due to her mental health issues, committed suicide himself in early 2022. Throughout all of this, Shanae had put out nine more albums after the success of I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got, and while they did not have the same success in America that the album I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got had, her other albums did garnish her a bunch of various award nominations. In 2021, she released her memoirs and announced her retirement from the music industry. There was recent talk that she was working on a new album that was supposed to be put out in 2024 and that a tour would soon follow. However, on July 26, 2023, Sinead O'Connor passed away in London, England at the age of 56. The cause of death as of this recording has not been announced, although foul play was not involved, according to police. In death, there have been the usual tributes from celebrities, some who knew her and mostly who didn't, but of course act like they did because they saw her at an event here or there. I guess that counts as friendship in celebrity circles. Only the few people whom she called friends were really there for her when she needed them. Others either made fun of her issues while she was alive or talked down to her when she would offer up advice to not sexualize themselves for the music industry, which was the advice she gave to Miley Cyrus when Miley was going through that phase in her career, to which Miley then attacked Sinead and told her to seek help. Sinead also said some pretty wild things about celebrities sometimes during her many mental health episodes, such as accusing Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy of giving Prince the painkillers that eventually killed him. She apologized, I believe, after that. Still, in an era when no one stood up for anything or only pushed buttons because it either got them attention or a payday, looking at you, Madonna, much like today's era of influencers and reality show stars, looking at you, everybody, Sinead stood up for what she felt was right and stood against what she felt was wrong, regardless of both the personal or professional cost. She spoke out about racism, especially in the music industry. She spoke out about sexual abuse. She spoke out about a woman's right to choose. She spoke out about the events in Northern Ireland at that time. She spoke out about human rights, and she never backed down from anything or anyone unless she felt that she might have aimed her weapon of choice at the wrong person which happened sometimes. See the aforementioned Arsenio Hall, Eddie Murphy thing. 
She was also painfully open and honest about everything going on in her life, including her own fallacies. Even her signature shaved head was partially an act of rebellion, since her record label wanted her to grow her hair long to make her, in their words, quote, more feminine, end quote. Sinead wasn't about sexualizing herself for her fans. She let her music do the talking for her because Lord knows she left it all out there in her music for everyone to see every single painful cut. In short, Sinead O'Connor was a badass and deserved to be treated a lot better in life. And now everybody wants to treat her nice when she's no longer here to hear it or for it to help her. Good job, world. The world could use more people like Sinead. Unfortunately, her like rarely walk the earth. The Prince penned song, Nothing Compares to You, covered in 1990 by Irish native and one of Ireland's most beloved singers, the late, great, extremely talented, extremely controversial, Sinead O'Connor, may she finally rest in peace, who is in the Irish Rock and Roll Museum on their Wall of Fame in Dublin, Ireland. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music